open up the ancient words. John chapter 6. Today we will finish the chapter with probably the longest collection of verses that we've looked at thus far, starting in verse 48, and then we'll read all the way to 71. We'll try to take a breath in the middle of it somewhere. But I encourage you, again, especially in light of our singing that beautiful song, thinking on the power of God's word, his intention for us, that we might have open hearts to receive what he has to say. The most important thing we could do today as we open his word together, especially. So, <clears throat> John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. We'll read it and then we'll spend some time in meditation over it and then we'll pray and share some thoughts. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogues he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord, as we just sang, we've come with open hearts. We want to receive what you have for us this morning. Just as every day you bring the new manna of your word to us as we open it. Yet in this moment, we're seeking perhaps something more than we might expect on a, on a normal day because we've gathered together for this. Lord, let us not 
see this as a throwaway time or as a, a ritual or simply something to make us feel better about where we are right now. May we see in your words this morning a deep and remaining need for Christ in all things. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you do the work that only you can do, as Jesus said here, as the Spirit who gives life? Would you refresh life to your saints? Would you grant life to those that perhaps don't know Jesus? Would you do all these things for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the end of John chapter 6 and subsequently the end of looking at this image every Sunday and considering this theme of the bread of life. Jesus' teaching is closed at the end of these verses. And the closing of this, this teaching, after considering in the first place that the miracle that Jesus performed to, in feeding over 5,000, again, maybe upwards of 20,000 people, showed very clearly that Christ is more than enough for what we truly need. We then saw in the moments where he sent his disciples across the sea into a storm that he meets us as our sanctuary in the storm. We saw in his teaching that though he is sought by men, he is sealed by God and sealed for a greater purpose than what people might seek in him on their own. We saw last week that the call that he has for us in this is for us to come believing, that simple faith is what is required of people, believing in what Christ has done on their behalf. And yet that belief cannot come out of our own free will, out of our own decision-making. There's nothing within us that does that. We need the Lord to draw us to Christ. And then we come to this last message, which we've titled, A Hard Saying, as the disciple, one, the, the spokesperson in verse 60 says here. And in thinking about this illustration of bread, it reminded me of coming to the end of the bread bag. And what is always that last piece of bread? What do you call it? The heel? Called the end piece? Some people have all sorts of different names for it. But it is the despised piece of bread, is it not? Generally, some of you weirdos like to eat that piece. Okay, that's fine. Wow. Wreck the illustration. That's okay. Generally, generally that heel piece of bread is the one that is skipped. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you only usually see one heel piece of bread by the end of the bag, but sometimes we see two, right? Because when the person comes to make the sandwich, they're saying, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to start this thing off. I want to start somewhere in the middle here. I'm going to get those good pieces. Oddly enough, a handful of weeks ago, I think we were having grilled cheese sandwiches and we were in such a scenario where we had plenty of bread for everyone to have a sandwich and I, being the sacrificial leader of the family, was given the heel piece, but I was given it deceptively and my wife's not even up here right now to hear this story, but that's okay. Maybe it's better that way. Don't listen to the sermon later, honey. The deception was my grilled cheese was made with the heel on the inside. Hardly noticeable to the untrained eye. But as you might imagine, I do not have untrained eyes. I saw it immediately. I saw exactly what was going on. I was getting the heel piece that my five-year-old, my two-year-old would look at and say, oh, I don't want to eat this sandwich. Isn't it outrageous? Because, again, for a little kid, we can say, well, boy, they, they won't eat anything that looks off to them, right? But we do the same thing so often, don't we? 
We might even wait for that heel to get a little bit moldy and say, oh, I guess we got to give it out to the birds. Just be done with it. And at first glance, some of the teachings that you see in John 6, and particularly this last hard saying, was essentially treated by the disciples, by the Jewish leaders, as the heel of the loaf of bread. They didn't want it. They weren't able to receive it. They weren't able to continue on in the doctrines of grace as Jesus presents here. But before we get to that, let's recap a little bit here, because verses 48 through 51 is largely something of what we've already seen in this teaching, right? Look at it again. You know, I, we ended with verse 48 last time, and we're picking up again here because it's just so good to hear these words, I am the bread of life. And let that not only be the bookend to the last section, but the introduction to the newest. Jesus yet again refers to the manna in the wilderness. We heard about this from the crowds, and now Jesus is teaching from this illustration again. He says, look, your fathers, yeah, generations ago, wandering in the wilderness, after the Passover, after the exodus from Egypt, they ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. you got to see there's a stark contrast between what Jesus is doing here, what his mission truly is, and this illustration from the Old Testament that was miraculous, that was wonderful, that was an act of provision, but it was just foreshadowing or pointing to what would come later, that Christ would come not just to fill a belly for a day, but to fill the soul for eternity. And that's why he says, yeah, they ate of that, but they died. He was very blunt about that. Now, maybe during this time, talking about death was an easier thing. I don't know. We're not, we're not really in this time. But when we think about it on where we are today, nobody wants to talk about death. Nobody wants to think about the consequences that we are all ultimately facing because of our sin, because of the sin of this world. Jesus isn't afraid of talking about that. And so as his ancient words are the same today, yesterday, and forever, we have to look at them as they truly are. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, he says in verse 50, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now listen to this. This is the sort of new part that sort of raised the eyebrows even further. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, let's not undersell particularly the Jewish leaders, but also the disciples, okay? Because they're hearing this, and yeah, they're going to respond in a very naturalistic way, much like how Nicodemus did, we talked about in the previous weeks as well, that, that when Jesus you have, you said, you have to be born again, he said, do I have to enter again into my mother's womb and be born? That doesn't make any sense. It's not as though Nicodemus or the Jewish leaders or the disciples here aren't thinking spiritually. It's just that spiritually this isn't adding up. And so all they can kind of come back down to is, well, are you talking, you're not talking literally, are you? But he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now you remember he started out with a massive crowd. If our church service suddenly was filled to the brim and people were lining up down the ramp and in through the streets to try to get in here and hear the message, it would be very hard to want to do what Jesus is doing here. Because as he said, hey, the manna was just a sign. Now he's getting to a harder teaching where he says, my flesh is what I'm giving. He's already called himself the bread of life before, but now he's talking about flesh. He's getting a little bit more in their faces. And what's amazing is, is that in that opportunity to speak to so many 
and to see that they're having trouble receiving this teaching, he actually doubles down on it. Verse 52, the Jews disputed amongst themselves, how can this, this man give us his flesh to eat? I'm ready to leave this end piece of theology in the bag and hope I never have to see it again because it doesn't make any sense. And when Jesus hears that, he doesn't do what probably all of us would do, right? When you're in the classroom and your students don't get something, you don't say, let's continue on to chapter 10 now, right? You say, okay, okay, hold on. Obviously, y'all don't understand this. So I'm going to say it once again. And if you need more help, come in at recess. And if you need more help after that, we'll get you a tutor. And if that's not enough, then no. Jesus actually just says, oh, you had trouble understanding that? Look at verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He doubles down on the whole eating flesh thing, and then it gets really weird because he says, you also have to drink my blood. Now think Old Testament-wise. Is drinking blood mentioned in the law of God? Yeah. Is it acceptable or unacceptable? It's absolutely unacceptable. So when these Jewish leaders hear this and say, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? And then Jesus says, hey, not only do you need to eat my flesh, you need to drink my blood. That is outrageously inappropriate, Jesus. The law demands that we eat nothing with the blood in it. How could you call us to such an outrageous thing? And again, we in 2022 might be thinking, boy, Jesus, you really blew it. You had a captive audience. Do you know how hard it is to come across a captive audience these days? Right? I mean, how many of us are sitting with our phones on our laps wondering, like, once this gets boring, I know exactly what I'm going to do. It's hard to keep people's attention and what Jesus does, or keep their interest, rather. And what Jesus does here is totally contrary to what we might instinctively do to help people understand. It's almost as if understanding is not the primary goal of this hard saying, is it? We look at it and we might be thinking, we get it, Jesus, because we do communion, right? And when we break the flour tortilla and pour the little grape juice, what do we say? This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. We get it metaphorically, symbolically, it makes sense, right? But he doesn't say that here. He's saying you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. You've got to deal with what I have to say. Now, the title is a hard saying, and that hard saying is going to lead us into this issue, this need for us to be united with Christ. And of course, he's already alluding to this, and it's going to become hopefully a little bit clearer as we go on. But this beginning of this passage and really the the beginning of the end of his message in John 6 has a lot to do with exclusivity in verse 53 he says unless you eat you have no life in you there's no other way to have life but to eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood he's also thinking eschatologically that is in regards to end times He says that everyone who does that, he will keep them to the end. 54 and 55, look at those again. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's moving very far away from any kind of notion that he's there to to provide lunch, and that's it. He's saying, what I'm going to give is my life for my people, 
and I'm going to keep them even to the last day. And when the last day comes, I'm going to raise them up from death to life. And then lastly, this matter of unity. Look at verses 56 through 59. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, he uses another illustration here regarding his unity with the Father. He says, I live because of the Father. Therefore, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The message is this, that the unity between Christ and the Christian is very similar to the unity between God the Father and God the Son. Christians do not become divine. We do not become little gods. But we are meant to be united with Christ. Why why would that be such a hard saying for us today? We'll talk about that in a second. I want you to be thinking. I'll give you another illustration. So just as the Father and the Son share in life together, unity with Christ is the only way for us to live, right? Well, consider marriage and consider Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's talking to the Corinthian church and he's saying, look, if you you become one flesh with a prostitute, you're one with that person. You're, You're breaking the whole image of what God has created to be good, what marriage was meant to be. And in verse 17, he says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's one of those great verses, like every verse in the Bible, that is worthy of study, but is also worthy of wonder. It's also worthy of us saying, put the commentaries aside, the Bible dictionaries, everything else, and just take a moment to consider that what Christ calls us into is unity with him such that Paul would say, who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you see where the conflict might arise in this idea? First of all, there's a matter of the holiness of Christ and our unholiness, our undeserving to be even in his presence, to be even a word upon his lips. But then there's also the matter of if I'm to become one spirit with Christ, what will that cost me? The message of scripture is it will cost you everything, right? Unless you take up your cross and follow me, right? Paul says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, Nevertheless, I live, but the life I live, I I live through him. He lives through me. There's a great cost to all of this. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about the unity. And he's saying it's, it's like when you eat bread, and that bread in one sense becomes a part of you. Only it's far bigger than that. Because the meal only sustains for a moment. Christ sustains for eternity. And when the Jewish leaders won't receive that, he says, okay, listen. The faith that I'm calling to you is like if you were going to eat my body and drink my blood. So we see the difficulty is not only in understanding the teaching, although the teaching is hard, but it's primarily perhaps the implications of this teaching. It will cost us something. The teaching calls us to identify with Christ and not with ourselves. And oh my goodness, can you imagine a message of losing your identity to be given to the culture of 2022. You you have no identity apart from Christ, Christian. Is that appealing to people in the world? We love to identify ourselves, don't we? And that seems like a new phenomenon, right? Because people will like to say, you know, I'm not this gender, I'm a different gender. I'm going to live my life this way as I decide it to be. 
And we look at that and we go, oh my goodness. And rightly so, in one sense, what is the world coming to? We don't even know who we are anymore. And yet, was this not also the problem in the Garden of Eden? Here, go ahead and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want you to be like him. He knows that if you do that, you'll know everything and you'll be like God. What a terrible lie. Because how was Adam and Eve formed? In the image of God. We bear his image by our humanity. Now that humanity mixed with sin, of course, ruins that image. But you see that it's, it's not so much of a stretch for people to wake up one day and say, I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl. Maybe I'm something else. If I've lost the whole idea that the creator has made me a certain way, then all I have left is my own autonomy, and, and I kind of like that. I kind of like the idea of putting myself in charge of even how I identify myself. Friends, I would love to identify as a man with a full head of hair, but I can't. Okay, technically there are things that can be done, but I'm not willing to go that far because I don't care that much. But there's things like that that are just obvious. If I stand on the roof of the church and say, I identify as a bird, and I jump off, I'm going to be really disappointed with how I've self-identified. And it's really easy for us to look at the world and say, see, it doesn't make any sense. But we do the same thing when we consider our unity with Christ and we consider the cost of that. The cost is our autonomy, is our own self-imposed rule. And we're going to lose that if we want to be united with Christ. Now, everything that Christ comes to do, he comes to say and do and be life, right? I am the bread of life. He doesn't come to condemn. He says the world's already condemned. We talked about that in John 3. I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Well, my friend J.C. Ryle from the 1800s, who I've been spending all these weeks with through John, had something amazing to say about how we receive this teaching. Listen to this. He says, fallen man in interpreting the Bible has an unhappy aptitude for turning meat into poison. The things that were written for his benefit, he often makes an occasion for falling. Have you turned something of the meat of God's word into poison? Why is that? Maybe it wasn't so much this passage. Maybe it was the passage before. Last week, we talked about something very difficult. Unless the Father draws them, they cannot come to Christ. Wait, you're saying that I can't make my own decision about following Jesus? Well, doesn't that go against every ounce of American evangelicalism? As we misunderstand it, yes. When we call people to come and make a decision for Christ, in one sense, it, that's true. They do need to repent. They do need to believe. But it's not something they do on their own will, their own decision. It's a drawing action of God. That's a hard saying, too. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of people have been, got, have been very angry at me for saying those kinds of things. But I have a problem. The problem is this is what Jesus says, and we can't quite get around it. Fallen man has an unhappy aptitude for turning meat into poison. What was meant for his good, he turns into an occasion for falling. And so it happens here with three different groups. Unity with Christ is going to threaten my autonomy. Let's look at the first group again, verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This isn't making any sense. This doesn't fit my worldview. Certainly when he brings up the whole thing about drinking blood, I'm totally out. I was just waiting for him to say something like that so that I could say, I'm not even going to consider Jesus anymore. And you know, that attitude still exists very much today. What does the Bible have to say about homosexual marriage? 
It's not God's design. And not only is it not his choice, it's actually punishable as a sin that earns eternal distance from God and judgment and wrath. You know, when people take something like that statement or something else where they say, this, God's word tells me something opposite to something I hold very dear, it's not a matter ultimately of people saying, I would be a Christian if you could just sort this whole thing out. The fact is, is that we all at some point are or have been or are being tempted to look for a way out. This is a hard saying. What's our way out? And what Jesus does is scary. As we said, he doubles down on the teaching. He gives them a way out. That's terrifying to me when I really think about it. I don't understand that tactic. Lord, I work for a week to try to get something that will make people want to come to you. And then you say stuff like this, and I wonder, are we working against each other here? He's only going to draw those who are truly his. That's a hard teaching. And he's going to root some people out. That's not my intention this morning. I don't have any desire to do that. And truly, what Jesus says and what he said last week still applies. Everyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. There's never going to be a day that somebody comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to know more. And he says, no, you don't. If that is truly the cry of the heart, then they can know that the Father's been drawing them. And and I think that as it pertains to that doctrine of, of election and predestination and the sovereign hand of God working to pull people to Christ... Rather than fearing that I've lost my autonomy, which I've already lost because I'm a slave to sin anyway, perhaps it is a benefit and a blessing that I know that when God is drawing me to his word, and even when I have those times where I'm like, Lord, I really don't want to obey you right now, but I think I have to, and I'm going to do it, we can know that that's God's work and not our own. Doesn't that bring some sense of peace? Doesn't that make you feel better to know you're not in charge? Well, of course not. When we look at our own autonomy and our own boxes we'd like to put God in and put our theology in this order that we like it and it works and it fits with my experience. Friends, the Bible doesn't fit with anyone's experience. Our experience is totally the opposite because we are ruled by sin. The true offense that they're taking is that they will need to draw near to God and they're not willing to do that. Manna, great illustration that Jesus is using. I wondered, though, if it might be warped in the minds of his hearers here. Because think about what manna was. In the wilderness, they're wandering. There's the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. But if I'm a regular average Israelite, I'm pretty far away from that. I might be able to see it from, you know, a bit. But God is still distant. And when manna comes falling and I'm allowed to pick up my day's worth of manna, Seems like a pretty good vending machine agreement with God, doesn't it? You stay up there, give me manna, I have this safe distance so that I can do the things I want to do, like grumbling and saying, well, all right, when are we going to be done with this terrible manna? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? We could have died there. Would have been better for us. When we think that God is far away, sin rules the day. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it did. You're welcome. That was pretty good, yeah. On the spot. Thank you, Lord. Manna creates a comfortable distance from God, and we think that there our sin is safe. 
but it is not. It's been a while since we've done a Lord of the Rings illustration, and so there, here's one right here. In the two towers, when Merry and Pippin are being carried away by the big ent, the tree that is, you know, the shepherd of the forest, and and the, the other ents had decided they're not going to do anything at all about uh, the, the terrible evil that is approaching them. Um, Pippin comes up with this idea, and he says, hey, instead of going this way back home, let's go this way back home, and we'll, we'll travel closer to where the bad guy is, to Isengard. And he has this great line. He says, the closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm. It's the last thing he'll expect. He wouldn't be looking for us to be walking right by his house. He'd be looking for us to go that way. Kind of makes sense, a little bit. And I thought about that too much, obviously, so that's why it's here. But the closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm is actually true as it relates to God. Because our God is an all-consuming fire. He's holy. He has a perfect, righteous standard for people. And true, if we were to come into the presence of God in our sin, he has every right and ability to totally squash us, to consume us in the fire of his holiness. And yet what he calls us to do is the exact opposite. He calls us to come. He draws us to him. And so it is safer for us to be closer to danger. It's very backwards. But we recognize that in that closeness, there's still this threat. My self-autonomy, my independence is in danger if I get closer to God. That's what is intolerable and offensive to the Jewish leaders, but also to the disciples. Look at verse 60, where we get our title this morning. It's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who? The Jewish leaders themselves, with all their book knowledge and all their experience, they couldn't listen to this saying. And a lot of us are fishermen and tax collectors, and some of us are even worse kind of people. <laughs> Shepherds even. Zealots. Who is it that can receive this kind of teaching? think about it today the great educated ones of our culture could they receive this teaching could those that live in absolute poverty and just working day by day trying to put bread on the table to sustain them day by day that don't even think about whether it's a heel or a middle piece that doesn't matter to them could that kind of desperation bring them to a place where they say i'll receive this saying Whether you're served filet mignon every night or you're trying to piece together two pieces of bread to make a sandwich, this is a hard saying, and the disciple is right. Who can listen to it? No one. Not only does it not make sense, its implications are far too reaching into our lives. So these disciples reveal that there's two groups of disciples here. There's the true disciples, those who believe and stay with Jesus, and there are those who are not true disciples, who don't believe and will ultimately leave because of teachings like this. In this, if we're going to take the whole message of Christ as, as true, then everyone who comes to him, he will not cast out, right? So when they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus knew in himself that his disciples were grumbling they, and then said to them, do you take offense to this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Oh, Jesus, this was your chance. You were disciples, the people that are listening, they want to understand it, right? Obviously, they don't. We talked about last week, the problem was desire. Desire for other things. And now the thing that we want to keep secure is our own autonomy. And so we can tell by the words of Jesus that these people who agreed were not truly believers. 
Because if they were, Jesus wouldn't be casting them out. And look at what he's doing. He's essentially casting them out. He says, this is a hard saying for you. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We'll talk about what that means in a second. But this is tragic. They were unwilling to draw closer to Christ. But their bigger problem wasn't even just that they were unwilling, but they were unable. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Walking away from Christ, at least in that moment, makes it seem like maybe the Father's not drawing you. And yet we are given a new day, right? Mercies are new every morning. Christ may not be drawing that person that comes to your mind when you think, oh, I really want this person to know Jesus. And and it doesn't seem like from what we're reading in John 6, maybe the Father isn't drawing him. Okay, maybe it doesn't look like he's drawing him today. What about tomorrow? What about your testimony? Do we know, is there, is, when, when we share the gospel with somebody, is there a, a bright red light that blinks above their head that says, don't stop sharing the gospel with this guy. God is not drawing him. Why is that? Because God likes to be secret? No. Because our job is to continually testify to Christ. And yeah, from our perspective, it might look hopeless or it might look hopeful, but the truth is God is going to draw who he will draw. And we can have confidence in that. So we have the first group is the Jews. The second group are these false disciples. And then there's even a third group. And again, this is another moment where I'm like, Jesus, why is it getting worse? It seems so hard. We have this great statement from Peter. We have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. We believe you. Look at verse 70. Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, here's your great opportunity to come in and say, hold on a second. See, Jesus chose them and one of them's a devil right? So maybe what we're talking about here isn't exactly how you've described the drawing of the Father, because he might draw some people who are even a devil. But who's he talking to? Did I not choose you, the twelve? This is not the same kind of choosing that, that the Father does in drawing people to Christ. This is the choosing as an appointment for office. Do you see that? I chose you, the twelve. You may not like that interpretation, but it at least seems to me that that's smoother than trying to make Jesus sound like he's contradicting himself. Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? There's a handful of implications here, isn't there? First of all, yes, he's choosing people for an office, but secondly, he chose Judas on purpose. Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Even over those who will turn from Christ, God remains sovereign. And Christ has chosen them. But even in this small select group of 12 minus 1 to 11, Peter's saying this great thing. Hey, look, we're, we believe. And Jesus says, you need to recognize that even in this most inner group, there's still a devil among you. There's still a betrayer. Unbelief the opposite of what Christ has been calling everyone to this whole chapter, unbelief expresses itself in our unwillingness to come to Christ, in our disobedience, in our inability to come believing, as we said last week. This, of course, distances us from God. The opposite of what Christ's whole mission is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, in our sin, we push God away. We want to move further and further away from him. And yet in our sin, in spite of our sin, we should say, Christ's goal is to come closer and closer. That is amazing to me. Because what do we do? 
when people tick us off. Get away from me. You know what? It will be better if I never have to talk to that person again. We don't talk about Bruno. Everything that he did, you guys didn't get that reference. Okay, some of you did, good. We don't talk about this person. We don't talk to that person. We create more distance from them. This is the very thing that we do before the Lord in our sin. And yet Christ does the opposite. He draws closer to us, and he, by the Father's work of drawing people to him, decides never to cast any of them out, even though their sin has brought not just that distance, but it has brought wrath and justice. The anger of God is on all who don't believe. That's terrifying. God is not just neutral towards those that he does not know or that he does not own. He is angry. He is, he, they are an enemy before him, Ephesians tells us. That is difficult, difficult to receive. So as we consider this hard saying, it really only leads us to even more harder sayings. What, what hope do we have? What chance is there for all enemies of God? We can't come on our own volition, our own choice. There's nothing in us that we could stir up to come to Christ. The solution, again, must be that Christ has to come to us. But he cannot just simply come to us and leave his work at teaching. That's why it's not enough for us to say, I like Jesus because he was a good teacher. If he was only a teacher, we would still be dead in our sins. He must also become the sacrifice for us. And so through his sacrifice, he sends his spirit to unite us to him. To, to basically break down the hardened will against God, soften it, and remake it into a new will that loves God, that loves what he loves, that hates what he hates. This is your testimony, Christian, whether you put it in these words or not. One day, you were an enemy of God, you hated everything that had to do with him, and the next day, he gave you brand new desires. And you were made totally new. That's what the sacrifice of Christ did. And the thing that went on in that is he came and brought you close and has no desire of leaving you. No plan to let go of any of those who are truly his. Union with Christ is another part of salvation that we contribute nothing to because we wouldn't even know where to start, would we? This is what's so wonderful about theology. And so often people leave theology behind because they don't understand it. And they say, well, I don't understand it, so it has no benefit to me. There are oodles of things that we don't understand that have immense benefit to us. Does anybody really understand how we're breathing right now? Can you really think about it? We know scientifically all this stuff and everything, but like, that's incredible. And you all just sit here like nothing big is going on. Your hearts are beating. You have life in you. If somebody ran in here and said fire, we, we could all get up and run out the door because there's life in us. The things that we don't understand are not useless to us. They are often the things that are most useful to us. That heal, the end piece of the bread. If it's your last hope of making a grilled cheese sandwich, it's very useful to you. And Christ is our only hope of having life. When he talks of the cross, he talks of the cross in verses 61 through 62. Now, this is a tough one, too. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Where was he before? He was in heaven, right? But in the Gospel of John, how we understand the ascension of Christ, the lifting up of Christ, it has always been thus far in the context of the cross. Okay? Jesus has been called the Lamb of God. 
He says in chapter 3, verse 14, that just like Moses lifted up the serpent and put him on a pole and killed it so that people could look at it and have life, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. So it seems most likely here that he's not talking about when he ascends up into the clouds to heaven, but rather when he ascends to the heavens on the cross. Because that is the point where his disciples and his would-be disciples and the Jewish leaders and everyone else will have to make the true decision about who Christ is. We'll have to truly come to him or leave him behind. Because that was his mission. That's what he came to do. There at the cross, he mingles glory and humiliation. We want to be so far away from humiliation. Our pride wants to bolster us up and make us something. And yet Christ mingles these two things. And he calls us there. He shows himself to be more than enough. He shows himself to be the sanctuary in the storm. He's the one who's worthy of our seeking and worthy of the seal of the God the Father. He's the one to whom we should come believing. And even though this may be a hard saying, Christ is worthy. He is all we need. And if we're not willing to meet him at the cross, we're not willing to meet him at all. Christ wasn't worried about the response. He knew that all that the Father would give to him would come to him. He had no despair. He was not sad. He was not worried. Look, look again at his question to the, the disciples, the 12 in verse 67. Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? Oh, how, how many people, I wonder, myself included, have read that so wrong? So Jesus just finished the sermon, and I feel pretty tired after a sermon, so I could imagine Jesus sitting there going, do you also want to leave? Are you, are you going to go? Are you going to leave me? Please don't leave me. It's not at all what he's saying. He's already said very clearly, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so the question is not a, please don't leave me for my sake. He's saying, what's your response going to be? Are you going to leave these things behind that I've said? Or are you going to embrace them? He's not calling us to understand everything. But he is calling us to faith. And I think Peter's response is brilliant. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. The confidence of Christ in his work, shown clearly throughout all the pages of the Gospels, but especially here. Could you use some of that confidence today? Union with Christ is where you will find that. Because I'll tell you, I struggle with confidence a lot, a lot more than I'd like to admit. I don't want to talk about it. I don't think anybody wants to talk about their struggles with confidence. But when we think of our confidence in Christ, we ought to think of the cross. He went to a place to die that is how confident he was in obeying his father. Who would be willing to do that? Who would be willing to give up their life as a display of the certitude that what they sought out to do would actually be done? 1 Corinthians 6, 17 again. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Mystery, a blessing, a joy, everything we need. Christ unites believers to himself. Verse 57, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Then he says in 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. That's what he sent to us. Now, in, in all of this, um, St. Augustine from 300 AD has a great short thing to say, and that is to believe and know that you have eaten. 
if we wonder this morning, am I truly in Christ? Am I really united with him? Believe. The call doesn't change because somebody's been to church for however many years or professed faith in Christ for so long. You know, the Chosen TV show has been really helpful for so many of us, hasn't it? I've really enjoyed watching the portrayals of the gospel of Jesus acted out, probably because I, I, like, I like that kind of stuff sometimes anyway, but, but also because there's something in something like The Chosen that addresses the weakness of our need to see things, to be in person, right? There's something special. I mean, you see people online post all sorts of stuff about The Chosen. The one I see feels like the most is, I didn't understand the Bible until now. And you go, well... What does that say about the Bible? It's not enough. I'm sure that's not the heart of what people are saying. I'm sure they're saying something more along the lines of, this was helpful to me to draw me to scripture. And that's certainly what the creators are trying to do with it. But positively, it does help us in one sense because we so in our weakness need to see things and understand them and, and get an idea of, of the in-personness of God. And that's why those moments where Jesus hugs a disciple or, or slaps the back of the disciple or pulls the disciple away or whatever, these interactions, these physical interactions with Jesus that we don't experience day to day are so profound to consider. And yet, though we feel like we lack because Jesus isn't physically sitting in the pink chair next to you, we have no lack in Christ. He's united to us by the Spirit. He's made this point very clear. He's saying, look, you, the crowds were just looking at bread. They just wanted the daily bread, the thing that they could have to sustain their physical life for the day. But Christ sustains us forever. And what he's looking for then is singular devotion to him. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and we now know that you are the Holy One of God. Our theme this year is sanctuary. And it begins with the fact that we have sanctuary in Christ. Are you united with Christ? Then you have sanctuary. You have a place of refuge. You have a place of safety. And you have what is better than that ability to even, you know, touch the face of Jesus because his spirit abides in you. Five quick things for applying this. First of all, in the storms of life. Verse 51, Jesus says, I'm giving the bread of my life, my, this bread of life so that you may eat of it and not die. And death has been very real for many of us, even in recent weeks and days and months. In that, we ought to consider our unity with Christ. That if we are united with him, death has no hold over us. Even though death stings a little, it seems, Paul says that death has ultimately lost its sting because Christ has conquered. And if we, Romans 6, 5 says, have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in the storms of life, whatever those things are that, that Im, Im, impending doom or, or fear of even up to the point of death, our unity with Christ addresses that need and covers that need. You know, growing up, whenever my car broke down, I would always feel better growing up. I didn't drive my car that long, but you know, once I started driving, I always felt better when my dad showed up, even though, you know, he might end up saying, this is going to cost you $5,000 or whatever it might be. If dad's there, I'm feeling a lot better already, right? Jeff has done this for me in the past week too with car problems that we've had. Jeff shows up and I'm like, okay, Jeff's here. He'll know what to do. We feel better because of the presence. We have that confidence because somebody is there who knows what they're doing. 
And so whatever the storms of your life may be, Christ is there with you if you are united with him. And he knows what's going on. He will meet you in it. Secondly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I love the King James, the translation where Jesus says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The King James says, it is the Spirit who quickeneth. It's a great word, quickeneth, giving life. That's what the Spirit does by his presence. And he continues to share that life of Christ with us through the revelation of his word. So would you embrace the word as as a means to embrace the presence of God, your unity with Christ? Hear from him. Walk in that. Let that be the true manna from heaven day by day. Thirdly, fellowship of the church. I love what Jesus says, or what I love what Jesus says, but what Peter says in 63, he's saying on behalf of all the other disciples. He's the spokesperson, right? Largely, they're supposed to be thinking all these things, and Peter just says it. But when you look around at the people that you're sitting in church with today, you're looking around and seeing people who have said, Where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. I don't know about this whole drinking blood and eating flesh thing. I certainly don't know about this. No one can come unless the Father draws him, but he has the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else we can go. That's the fellowship that the church has. Because we've all agreed. We don't get everything. We don't understand it all. But we want to believe it. We have nowhere else to go. Fourthly, our warfare against our sin, a matter of our unbelief. Verse 68 is a great one. I always think about some of these verses as daggers that you can kind of slip in your shoe and pull out when sin is tempting. In verse 68, again, Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When sin would tempt us to go contrary to what God has said, we might even be able to say, okay, sin, you're making a really good point here, but I can't get past the idea that he has the words of life and I have nowhere else to go. Lastly, all the way back up to verse 51, we skipped it on purpose. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we must also be on mission to the world with this life. We don't just keep it to ourselves and wait for Jesus to pick us up. He has us here for that purpose, that we might make him known and make much of him, relying on him day by day.